their songs. Some of them sound really sound really old. I like that. Okay, well, let's go ahead and let's uh, start a word of prayer. You'll have to forgive me. I'm pressing every button. I have every screen I own right here. So you'll just have to forgive me. All right, let's go ahead and let's open in a word of prayer. Dear Gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you and we thank you so much for your love, your mercy, and your grace that you've lavished upon us in your Son, Jesus Christ. We just ask that as we uh, spend time in your word, as we spend time looking to Jesus and seeing how much better Jesus is than all of us, uh, we're just so very thankful for your word. We're so very thankful for the things that are found in your word and the things that are said there. We just thank you and love you in your son's name. Amen. So, in my research of the documentary uh, evidence of the existence of Santa Claus, I have come to a conclusion that might shock some of you. I... Um, Santa Claus might be a criminal. Uh, when you think about all of the international copyright laws and intellectual property that he's stealing uh, as he's going around making all those toys, I, I checked it out this morning. He may be liable for trillions of dollars if there was a lawsuit. So uh, I, I know that might be hard for you to take. I know the room is really quiet now. I'm really sorry. No, I'm just teasing. And Jeff, I don't want any more emails. Uh, my friend Jeff from Florida keeps sending me emails saying, why do you hate Santa? I don't hate Santa. Uh, I just think he's a criminal. No, I'm, I, I don't hate Santa. I just think that Jesus is far better. Jesus is significantly better. Uh, and even if the myths of Santa were true, uh, which they're not, but if they were, Jesus would still be better. And so during the month of December, that's what we've been chatting about, is how Jesus is better than Santa. And uh, today I'm going to continue my case. If it already hasn't been proven, I want to continue. Uh, so this morning, let's go to Hebrews chapter 1 as we continue thinking about how Jesus is better. And this morning, we're going to find out why Jesus is better. And it's it's simple. You ready? Because he's the creator. He wins. That, that's it. Sermon over. Jesus is better because he's the creator. No, the Bible has a lot to say about creation and how Jesus is the creator. And this morning, I, I want to look at five things about Jesus as the creator uh, starting here from Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2. Allow me to read that, and then we'll kind of talk about some of the things that we're going to talk about. So notice what the author says. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So first we're going to look at how Jesus is the creator from this text. He's the creator. Then I want to spend a little bit of time talking about what we mean and what scripture means by creation. And then we're going to talk about the manner of creation. We're going to talk about the extent of creation and the purpose of creation. 
All of this is to show that Jesus is better. So first we're going to see how Jesus is the creator. Then we're going to look at a definition. Then we're going to look at how it came about, the extent of it, and the purpose of it. So let's look first here at how Jesus is the creator and how God used Jesus. Because notice what it says here in Hebrews 1-2. It says, through whom, this is God, through Jesus, also he created the world. And so you see that? You see that? Through whom? This, this implies that Jesus is the instrument of creation. So although God is the architect, it is the one who's the creator. He did that through Jesus. Now this implies a couple of things. Number one, this implies that Jesus was around before the creation. Yep. In order to be the creator, you have to be there before the creation. This speaks to how Jesus has always existed. He has no beginning. He is the creator. We see this throughout all of the New Testament of how Jesus is the one who was before the foundation of the world, and he was the one who created. Just because it's so important to understand that Jesus is fully God and fully man, and part of being God is this eternality, I just want to show you a couple passages that speak that Jesus pre-existed before the world came into existence. Jesus is eternally existent, self-existent. So go with me to John 1. John 1, we'll just start in verse 1. Important, important truths here. So notice how John starts. He starts, in the beginning. So this reminds us of the beginning of the world. Okay. Now John adds, in the beginning, because we as humans are finite. And we cannot think of something that is outside of time. We, we always think of something as having a beginning, a middle, and an end. So John has to add this at the beginning or in the beginning for our sake. So at the point when we think of creation, notice what it says, was the word. It, did, it, did, it doesn't say there was the beginning and then guess what happened because of the beginning? The word happened. No, 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 no. It says at that moment that you and I think beginning, there was, he already existed and continues to exist. He existed before the beginning. He's there at the beginning. That's what that word was means, was the word. And then notice what it says. And it says, and the word was with God. So this tells us that this word, halagos, here is distinct. In order to be with something, you have to be distinct from that thing. So he's at the beginning. The beginning didn't begin him. He is there with and then notice what it says. It says, and the word was God. And so here John says, here's this one. We will come later to find out that the word is Jesus. Right? The word added on flesh and dwelt amongst us. So the word was at the beginning. He was there before the beginning. He was distinct from God the Father. And he is also God himself. There's one other passage. Uh, go with me to Colossians chapter 1. Maybe other than Hebrews 1, Colossians 1 is one of those great passages that tell us about the person of Jesus and the work of Jesus and the importance of Jesus. And notice, notice what he says here in verse 15 of chapter 1. 
He is the image of the invisible God. You see Jesus, you see God. He, he's the physical representation of God. He is God, but he represents the invisible God. God the Father, God the Holy Spirit. When you see Jesus, you see them. Because they're one. And yet there's, at the same time, three. Three persons. One nature, three persons. So he's the image. But when you see him, you see all of the attributes of God. Because he is God, right? His unique ministry, Jesus' unique ministry, is to reveal the Father. Therefore, he has to be that visible representation of the Godhead in order for us to know the Godhead. Okay? Then it says he's the firstborn of creation. This does not mean that creation happened. Therefore, Jesus then happened. He was the first thing. No, that, that can't happen because John 1 already told us he was there in the beginning. He wasn't there after the beginning. This firstborn rather speaks of one's birthright. He inherits. It's a lot like that phrase that we saw last week when it, he's the heir of all things. That's what it means here. And then it says, notice this verse 16, for by him all things were created. All things. So Jesus is the creator. God used Jesus as the creator. Thus we could say God created, Jesus created. We could look at God the Father. We could see his role in creation. We could look at the Holy Spirit and his role in creation. But all are involved in creation. And Jesus definitely is the creator. And he created all things. Now just in case you're like me and you're dull and you want to go, well, when you say all things... Uh, what what do you mean all? John or here Paul helps us out. Well, things that um, are in heaven. That's a lot of things. Things on earth. Yep. So things up there and things down here, right? He's created those. But what about the stuff you can't see? Oh, he says visible and invisible, right? So he's the creator of the things up there. He's the creator of the things down here. He's the creator of the things you can see and the things that you can't see. It says, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority, all things were created through him. And then, this is an important part, and for him. This means that all of creation exists simply because it exists to glorify Jesus, right? He created it for himself. It's his. He's the creator. He creates it for himself. Therefore, everything that exists, every human being, is his. Right? So just in thinking about the creator role of Jesus, this implies, as I said already, the pre-existence of Jesus. It speaks of the wisdom. If you think about all of the things that are created, and as we look at, at all the animals, the birds, the fish, the plants, the stars, as we look at all of them, are we not just incredibly in awe of the wisdom and the intelligence of creation, of how, of how God created, not only just created such a being or such creatures, but that he was able to create them with the ability to adapt, with the ability to continue to support themselves as he provides for them. An important thing to also remember, especially in today's day and age, there's a growing uh, segment within side of the professing church, those who call themselves Christians, that are thinking of creation in, in pantheistic terms, <coughs> meaning that they believe that God is everything. 
tree, cows, birds, you, me. And so to understand God, we kind of have to understand everything. And when we die, we kind of go into this, I don't know, big soup thing. And we all kind of then get to meet God, right? So we're just like this consciousness that's part of this larger con consciousness. No, that's not what we see in the scriptures, right? God, Jesus is distinct from his creation, right? He's above his creation, as we'll see later on in the book of Hebrews. One of the other things, too, that's really important for us to remember is that Jesus is the only one that was able to exercise free will in creating. Nothing caused him to create. He decided to create as a free decision. So, as we think about creation, I've used this word several times, let's kind of go to a definition of creation. When we say creation, what we're describing is we're describing this action by which God, according to his sovereign will, in contemplation of his sovereign will alone, by the way, and for his own glory, initially brought into existence the entirety of the cosmos, whether it's visible or invisible. That's what he did. So God, the sovereign Lord, said, I will create for myself and for my glory, and he did so. We must remember that he did this without any material. So if you and I are about ready to create something, I need things to help me create, right? I, I, I gotta have something, right? If I'm building a house, if I'm creating a house, I gotta have the wood, I gotta have all this stuff, right? If, if I'm thinking of, of a song, there already is music theory that I'm using, I'm building off of music theory, and I'm using things that, that are already part of creation. God, it was him. He existed alone, and he spoke it into existence. This is part of being the creator. There was nothing, and he spoke it. So as we then think about the manner, then, of this, we must remember that creation is completely dependent on him. And, and, and he's commanded it into existence. That is an important thing to remember as we think about the manner of creation. Let's go later on in the book of Hebrews. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, notice verse 3. It says, by faith, we understand. Well, that's an important statement, by the way. By faith, we understand. Remember, faith is the assurance of things not seen, and the convictions of things are, uh, sorry, the assurance of things hoped for, and the convictions of things not seen. So none of us were at the creation. So what do we have to do when we come to God's word? We have to say, well, I believe God was there. Kind of the, the most important part of creation is the creator. I believe he was there, and I believe that God can communicate how he created to us in a way that we can understand it that gives him the most glory, right? So when I come to the Bible, I'm coming and saying, God is telling me what's true, and that's it. Now you say, well, what happens if you see something different in the world? Well, you would either say, well, one, you're not seeing it right, or two, 
you already have a preconceived idea that one thing's not true, therefore you're refusing to see it right, right? The idea is by faith we trust God in the things that we have not seen. I don't need a video camera, I don't need video images of the creation. God said this is how he did it. Therefore, if I'm going to be a believer in God, I have to trust him. And, and so by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. That's how he did it. He spoke it into existence. We believe that. We weren't there. We have to trust the one who was there. We have to trust God. And then notice what it says. So that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Well, there you go. The things that are seen now, the trees, the rocks, the birds, you and I, we were spoken into existence, right? Those, that initial creation was spoken into existence. He didn't have all this other material that he then used to make all the other material. Now you may say, well, why would, why would the author of Hebrews talk about this in the ancient world? Didn't they have already a concept of gods and polytheism? And didn't they, didn't they have already creation, this idea that we're creatures and there's a creator? Of course they did. But their creators were weird. And their creators used stuff and things that happen. The reason why there's a mountain is because somebody killed their dad and threw their dad's head over into the ocean and rocks came up on top of the ground and now that's why there's this mountain. And, uh, you, know, you know why there's a rainbow? Because somebody's shooting somebody with an arrow and that's why there's a rainbow. So all these really weird explanations of things and it all, it all requires that there's already an existence of something. And, and they... In order for them to get to that point of going, well, there's got to be something that creates, there's got to be that first thing. Well, they have this really elaborate story that makes absolutely no sense. So in, in that polytheistic world, of course, of course this has to be written. Of course it has to be written that we have this God who spoke things into existence. This was ordained by God. This was part of his plan. Uh, it, it, as God created the world, what did it say in Genesis? He looked at all of it, and it was good. We also see that there was this progressive nature to creation. What I mean by that is that God, he could have simply just said, exist, and it all was just created in an instant, right? But for whatever reason, he decided to do this in six literal days. That's what Genesis tells us. Now I know there's some people that might find that rather strange that I'm suggesting that God created the world six literal days and not six literal seconds. Which, by the way, the church has believed most of the history of the church is that God, the word day means seconds. It's only in the past couple hundred years that now the idea is that a day means thousands upon thousands upon millions of years. I think we got to read the Bible as it's written. The book of Genesis is written as a historical narrative. And therefore, we need to use proper, consistent hermeneutics in the book of Genesis. You can't just say the first part of the book is metaphorical, and the second half of the book is literal. You can't do that. It's got to be consistent throughout the whole thing. Kind of like our church. We're not very consistent on our definition of salad and cookies. Salad can mean anything, but cookies is very specific. You can't do that, right? 
It either has to all be allegorical or it has to all be literal. But I'm okay with the inconsistency of an allegorical interpretation of salad and a literal interpretation of a cookie. I'm okay with that. I can live with that. So the idea then is that God created through Jesus in six literal days the world. And not only did he just create the world and the universe, but he created the world and the universe in such a way that he is able to then help it exist, to continue to exist with these incredible abilities to provide for themselves, right? All relying upon the creator for their mere existence. So when we go back to Hebrews, this is not a small statement. When the author of Hebrews in 1, 2 says, for through him... He created the world. This, this is a giant statement. This is a giant statement of who Jesus is. This is a giant statement of, of how we're supposed to view him. Because only God can be the creator. Now, there's some implications. Just think about this for a moment as we think about the extent of this creation and the implications of this. If Jesus is the creator and he's God... That means that he created all things. He created everything in the heavens and on the earth. Everything that you can see and you can't see. In fact, this creation, if we go back to Colossians 1.16, it talks about thrones and kingdoms. There's even this idea that even the existence of forms of government and hierarchy are a part of his purview as creator. And you would say, well, how does that work? Because he's God. He's in control. He, he's sovereign. That's the extent of this. When, when we talk about the implication of this statement that Jesus is the creator, we're saying he is the sovereign Lord over everything. That's it. He doesn't have to answer to us about why he created a platypus, right? We, he doesn't have to, we, don't have, we don't have the right to go up to him and demand, well, explain to me why, explain to me why, he is the sovereign creator. We have to give an explanation for ourselves, not the other way around. You, you understand that because he's the creator, and the, and, and the implications of this and the extent of this is that there is no other, there is no other conclusion than we must passionately worship Jesus Christ. That's it. So Jesus is better than Santa. Yeah, because he's the creator. Now, there's one other thing that I want to talk about just briefly. And, and the question is, why would God, why would Jesus create? What's the purpose of this creation? Right? It's not just that he just created so we all sit back and go, wow, what a great creator. There, there's a reason for this creation. And so I just want to, sorry, we're going to look at a couple Bible passages. So hopefully your fingers are nimble this morning. But I want, to, I want to start back in Colossians 1. So let's go to Colossians 1 to look at the purpose of creation. Why does it exist? We've already seen the definition. We've already seen Jesus as the creator. We've already seen the manner. We've kind of talked about the extent and some of the theological implications. But why? Why? You ready? Verse 16 again. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers, all things were created through him and for him. It's 
created for him, right? It's his. Then notice verse 17. And he's before all things. See that? He's before it. That means he's the leader. He's the sovereign. He's the one he, we look at. He, he is, there's no one greater than Jesus. And in him, all things hold together. Yet the reason we don't spontaneously explode right now is because Jesus says so, right? That's, that's what it is, right? The reason that the planets don't crash into each other is because Jesus says so. This is part of being the creator. And then notice what it says next. And he is the head of the body, the church. Just think of that for a moment. The creator God is also in charge of the church, us. He's in charge of us. He's the one that tells us what to do and what to believe. He's the head. We follow him. He's the king. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. You ready? So here it is. That, that in everything, he might be preeminent. That is the purpose of creation, that Jesus might become preeminent. Now, I often think of preeminence foolishly like a list, right? Jesus is number one, Penn State football is number two, no, I'm kidding. Right? Like I have this list of priorities of things that's really important, one, two, three, four. That is not what the word preeminent means. The word preeminent here in this idea of Colossians, and I think it's a little bit better, if we think of it like a wagon wheel, right? In the middle, you have the spoke and you have all these things coming out of it. When Jesus is preeminent, it's he's the center and everything streams from him. It's not just that he's number one. It's that he's so overwhelmingly important and essential in every endeavor and thought and action in the life of the church. That is it. Everything, everything runs through the filter of Jesus is the essential, the most important thing. There's another passage. Go with me to Psalm 19. It kind of goes along, so if it's tautological, I'm sorry. Uh, but to me, it's enough to say these are kind of two different things. One, that Jesus is preeminent. But then there's another reason, and this is what David says in Psalm 19.1. Notice what it says. It says, To the choir master of Psalm of David, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth. And their words to the ends of the world. You see that? God also created the world so that when we go around, we look at, we look out and we say, Wow, what a creator. Look at the wisdom, look at the holiness, look at the transcendence of Wow. Think about think about the night sky. Think about when you see the moon, when you see the stars. That sense of smallness that you get, and the sense of the, the bigness, and, and the one that created this is bigger than that. And, and, and there's this sense of awe, there's this sense of creatureliness that you get when you look at this. I remember the first time that I saw the Pacific Ocean, I got the same sense. I am really small. I am, I am a creature. And, and, and I, I just thanked God that he took enough interest in me 
and intervened in my life, apart from my own sinfulness, and by His grace, sent His Son to come down and prosper for my sins. There's something else. Go with me to the book of Romans, chapter 1, of why create, what's the purpose? So we'll start in verse 18. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so that they are without an excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So think of this. God created man. And inside of man is this, he created this concept that there is a creator. And as Paul will say in Acts 17, that the hope is that through this, Man will seek God and grope for God. Now, we'll come to find out that because of the depravity of man, man doesn't do that. And God has to draw man to himself. But notice that there's this idea that he gives something inside of man that man knows I'm a creature. And that there is something as he looks at the creation that sees God's eternal power, divine nature. It's not salvation, but, but it's something. And so, as we see here, one of the things that is observed in creation is what? Uh Uh-oh, I'm in trouble. If I'm a creature, and I've done something against the creator, then I'm going to be in trouble. So notice in verse 18, when it talks about the wrath of God is revealed, it's seen, it's clearly seen. They know there's a sense of right and wrong, there's a law. Yes, they see it, but what do they do in the midst of that? Instead of turning to God, they suppress that truth. They drown the truth so they can't hear it. So creation, as, as in all things that God reveals, either one draws you closer to him in awe, or it causes you to close your ears and scream as loud as you can and say, I'm not listening to you, na 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 those two things. So, with saying that, that, that all of that can be said, yep, Jesus is better than Santa. Right? Even if the myths about Santa were true, which they're not, but if they were, Jesus is way better. Right? In fact, the guy, Pastor Nick of Myra, right? This guy that the whole thing's based off of the myths come. Uh, he believed that Jesus was superior to him. In fact, he even affirmed Jesus as creator. Uh, Pastor Nick was at this particular meeting in Nicaea, and he was part of the penning and the signing of this particular statement. Allow me to read this statement from this famous council called the Council of Nicaea. This is what he says. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ. 
the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, from God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father, through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven, was incarnate of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, became truly human for our sake. He was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried on the third day. He rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is now seated at the right hand of the Father. Think of that. Just think of that. The guy who the myth of Santa Claus is based off of was there at this council and affirmed this statement and was known as a defender of these truths. Do you think a guy that wrote something like that would think of himself as being superior to Jesus? Absolutely not. Once again, I don't want to try to make us uh, uh, downplay Pastor Nick. I, I don't want us to downplay the myth of Santa Claus, the international criminal. Those are fun. Those are fun stories. I love those movies. Our family, we watch Elf all the time, even when it's not Christmas. In fact, if you're over at our house, we're probably quoting Elf more than any other movie, particularly that part where the narwhal comes out and is looking at Buddy the Elf and says, Bob, buddy, hope you find your dad. That we say that to each other all the time. I say that to my kids. Bye, buddy, hope you find your dad. I think it's hilarious. I'm not against those things. I think those things are fun and they're fine. But when it comes to who I worship and who I spend my time thinking about, when I think about how every second should be for one person, that is Jesus Christ without equivocation, right? Now, we struggle with that. We struggle passionately worshiping Jesus Christ all the time. That, that's, that's kind of going to be our struggle for the rest of our existence here. But know this. Jesus came down and died on the cross for our sins. He was buried and rose again on the third day. The Bible teaches that when we, are, when we place our faith in Christ, we are given the righteousness of Christ, and we will co-reign with him. And you might not feel like that right now. You might not think of yourself that way right now. But that's who you are, Christian. That's who you are in Christ. This is what's been lavished upon you because God in his great love sent his son to come and die on the cross for our sins. Now we struggle seeing Jesus as being preeminent in our life because we still got that flesh that wants something else to be preeminent. Don't forget who you are. Don't forget Jesus in the midst of this. Don't forget that this is a struggle. So sometimes in the midst of the struggle, we just need those reminders of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And so this morning, we have an opportunity to do that as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Of the body of Christ, the believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are more than welcome.